This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dartmouth College professor Colin Calloway leads a seminar for high school teachers on Native American history from the colonial era through westward expansion. He talks about how tribes operated as separate nations, both in their interactions with each other and with European countries. This class is hosted by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. It's about an hour, 15 minutes. Good morning. So um, we've been talking about ways in which we can incorporate, integrate Native American experiences into American history. And I've suggested that kind of little cameo appearances, Pocahontas or Indians waving rifles at Wounded Knee in 1973 doesn't really help. And I I think on Sunday I I said if we really did this seriously and effectively, we would come up with a very different narrative of American history. And that may not be attainable and it may not even be desirable because we live in the real world. And school boards and textbook publishers and so on may have uh, problems with that. Um, So there is another approach, and that's what I want (coughs) to suggest today, is to look at, if you like, the narrative we have, right? This one that I critiqued uh, yesterday, that east-west narrative of, of American growth and the expansion of the nation. To look at that and identify in that narrative a missing strand, and that missing strand would be the Native American strand. So what I'm going to talk about this morning is, it's kind of a large swath of American history where I, I pull that Native American strand out of it and say without Native American presence, without Native American power, things would not have happened as they did. And it'll take you about five minutes to say, wait a minute, some of this is a little sketchy. Because, of course, history is complex. It's not all about one thing. There's a multiplicity of issues and factors going on. But I would suggest that identifying a Native American strand and saying, this explains American history. This explains what happens. It's perhaps no more extreme or far-fetched than saying it's all about freedom. It's a bunch of things, but the one that I think we've (coughs) omitted in large part is that Native American strand. So if we look at this picture and then look at this map, This map is in many ways an academic reflection of that picture. And I just pull this from, you can pull this from any textbook. It'll be called the growth of the United States, the territorial expansion of the nation or something. And it's very useful for mapping that. And it shows that east-west geographic growth. And it shows the different nations involved. The United States acquires its territory when it acquires its independence from Great Britain, everything to the Mississippi. 
and then it acquires the Louisiana Territory from France, and it acquires Florida from Spain, and it acquires Alaska from Russia, and it acquires Oregon <coughs> through agreement with Britain, and it acquires the Southwest from Mexico. So there's a lot of nations mentioned in that, and not one Native American nation, not a single Indian nation on this map. So what our students see when they look at it is that this growth of the nation happens in the absence of Native people. And what I'd suggest is it happens the way it happens in large part because of Native people. And that this is not inevitable. Thomas Jefferson spoke about an ocean-to-ocean republic, an ocean-bound republic. Here it is. So it makes sense that we look at this map and say, yeah, everything falls into place lockstep. Because right? we, we, we know this is going to happen. But our problem is, whether we're teachers or students, is that we're, <coughs> we're blinkered, if not blinded, by hindsight. We know how the story ended. And so given this massive expansion, if you like, of this juggernaut, yeah, Indians don't figure much into it because, of course, they are just the victims of this expansion. But November 1795, John Adams says in his diary, George Washington, President Washington, has dinner one week on four different occasions with different delegations of Indian chiefs. This is 1795, when the United States has already won, if you like, the war for Ohio. Washington is not having dinner <coughs> every other evening or afternoon with Indian delegates because he likes having dinner with Indians. I can assure you of that. Right? He's doing it because it matters. Because <coughs> the nation is still young. It's still fragile. It's still threatened by foreign powers who are not too friendly, Britain in the north, Spain in the south, and it's still threatened by still formidable Indian power. So Washington understands that his foreign policy, the foreign policy of the new nation, must involve not only France and Britain and Spain, but also Indian nations. And that's something I think we've forgotten what George Washington knew. And this story did not have to unfold this way. So if we go back to the middle of the 18th century, a non-Indian view of North America looks like this. Again, no Indian nations there. But look at all that blue. In the middle of the 18th century, it looked, particularly if you were looking at North America from London or Williamsburg, like there was a strong likelihood <coughs> that the continent was going to be blue, that it was going to be French. Right? Because from the British perspective, the British colonies are hemmed in east of the Appalachian Mountains, and west of the Appalachians, it's all French. Right? And you would get the impression that this is a predominant French power. Right? Well, it's not. It's a house of cards. 
because the French empire in North America is built on the fur trade, which, as we talked about yesterday, requires Indian customers, Indian hunters. And French defenses, French power, if you like, in the West, revolves around a network of alliances with Indian nations. As somebody pointed out yesterday, this is why the French pay such attention to their diplomatic relations with Indian people, to getting it right. And that involves not only endless negotiations, learning the language of wampum diplomacy, but also endless gift-giving. Because in Indian society and Indian diplomacy, giving gifts and receiving gifts is the lubricant of that diplomacy. Gifts which might involve silver gorget medals, guns, alcohol, whatever. They're not only desirable artifacts, but they are symbols of commitment. Allies give each other gifts. Giving gifts illustrates, demonstrates that you're speaking the truth, that you're backing up what you say with words, that when you say we are allies and friends, you demonstrate that in a tangible way with giving gifts. The French got that down to a fine art. And it looks as if, and certainly the British in the middle of the 18th century, feared that that French relationship with Indian nations was not only going to stifle Anglo-American expansion, but would also, might also translate into a permanent French empire in North America. And it didn't. And it didn't because in the French and Indian War, or what is called in Europe the Seven Years' War, the British defeat the French. They do that famously in our textbooks when General Wolfe captures Quebec, etc., But they also do that less famously because the British recognize that the Achilles heel of the French in North America is also their strength. It's those Indian alliances. And if they can seduce, in the 18th century sense of the term, Indians, win them over to the British side or at least secure their neutrality, they effectively undermine French power. So the French fortresses in the West, they're dotted to the West, that <coughs> sent chills down the spines of British ministers, are usually puny little palisades, <coughs> stockades, with a garrison of a few guys. And they depend for their power and purpose not on French firepower <coughs> or defenses, but on the Indian people who are living around them. With their goodwill, goodwill, the French have (coughs) a presence and a power. Without the tolerance (coughs) and allegiance of Indian people, it just evaporates. So an important part of the British victory in the Seven Years' War, particularly in the West, involves diplomatic victory, winning Indians over. One way to do that is to cut off the supply of goods to the French because without the giving of gifts, Indian diplomacy is bankrupted. So when the British destroy the French Atlantic fleet (coughs) at Kiberan Bay in 1759, that has huge repercussions. First of all, it means that no more supplies, no more troops are going to make it across the Atlantic to Canada. But it also cuts out and cuts off French supplies. When the British capture Quebec, 
<coughs> Louisbourg, Fort Frontenac. That severs French supply lines <coughs> so that French goods, that is, gifts for Indians, cannot make it into the West. Although this, this erosion is taking place after 1758. So that drying up, if you like, of French goods, coinciding with a reversal of the tide in the war, convinces Indian people, yeah, maybe we want to rethink our options. And either opt out of this conflict, which we've been fighting for the most part on the side of the French, or maybe throw in with the British. Now, when the British and the French talk about that and see that happening, they explain it from a British and French perspective. That is, you cannot trust Indians. They are fickle, good 18th century word, unreliable, and they are mercenary. They only turn out to fight for the highest bidder. And so what are Indians doing? Well, we don't know what Indians are doing looking at this map because there are no Indians on this map. This is a European fantasy. But if we consider that blue area, or that blue and red striped area, as inhabited not just by Indians, but by multiple Indian nations, all of whom have their own foreign policies, they sit at the center of their own universe, and they're dealing with not only France and Britain, but different colonial colonies and different Indian nations as well. Then that sets us up to think a little differently. What are these Indians fighting for? They're not fighting for France, except insofar as French interests coincide with their own. They can maybe ally with the French, if you like, use the French as pawns in their war to limit (coughs) English settlement. Their two main objects are to maintain their own independence and to maintain their own land. You don't want European garrisons. You don't want European settlers on your land. You do want European traders because they will bring the guns and other things that you require. And so as situations shift, so do Native American foreign policies. So do tribal foreign policies. This would not be unusual. This is how nations operate but we haven't always attributed that same, if you like, common sense logic to (coughs) Indian people. And diplomacy is at the heart of all of this. Astute, effective, sophisticated Native American diplomats shuttling between Quebec and Albany, between Williamsburg and New Orleans, figuring out strategies whereby they and their people have the best chance of survival in what is becoming an increasingly perilous and world for Indian people. It's not an easy thing to do. But that, those Native American actions are fundamental. They're not the only thing explaining the British, British victory, but they're an important aspect of that <coughs> victory that we haven't really thought about. So that by 1763, yeah, question. Was there an 18th century version of Tecumseh who understood that if all the tribes acted based upon their own individual needs, they were in trouble? Yes, stay tuned. (laughs) I didn't plan plan that question. (coughs) 
1763, the map of North America looks like the map on your right. The blue area is gone. Again, I've just lifted this from the textbook. The blue area is gone. France is gone. France has exited North America. It's divided its territory between Britain, eastern Mississippi, and Spain in the west. Basically, it gave its territory west of the Mississippi to Spain to keep it out of the hands of the Brits. France is gone, with the exception, if you look bottom right, of a little pink area, a little red area. That's San Domingue, what we would now call Haiti, which we in this decade <coughs> were accustomed to hearing on the news that Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Right? In 1763, it was the richest jewel in the French imperial crown right? because <coughs> that was the island that produced sugar and coffee. Right? Problem was, you had 30 to 40,000. French colonial population and close to half a million black slaves. So it's a powder keg. But France is gone. And then you look at the map on your left. So Britain has fought this world war. Winston Churchill called it the first world war. They've been victorious everywhere around the globe. And in America, they've acquired this huge empire now stretching to the Mississippi, which is what Brits had been fighting for for a long time. Get rid of the French and their Indian allies. <clears throat> the area west of the Appalachians will then be open to settlement. We can move west, occupy those lands. Right? And people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Patrick Henry, all of these guys, the colonial elites, particularly in Virginia, had heavily invested and speculated in western lands in expectation of that glorious day. Because once the French were defeated, settlers would swarm over the mountains and they would clean up, selling or renting their land to migrant population. Well, but look, there's a big red line down the middle, right? down the Appalachian, tra the Appalachian Trail, just close by here. Right? The same year that the British secure this massive victory, they also, in a sense, slammed the door, or at least partially closed the door, on that Western expansion. The proclamation line of 1763 is designed to check expansion and to protect Indian land. So what's all that about? At the end of the war, the French leave and the British occupy the forts that the French previously occupied. The British had secured Indian neutrality in the war by telling the Shawnees and the Delawares and others that your lands will be safe. Once we kick out the French, we will be good neighbors. We're not intent in taking your land. We just want to get rid of those, the French who are bad people. <coughs> And then there will be this new era. Well, what happens instead is that Indian people now see <coughs> French garrisons leaving and red-coated garrisons arriving. And not only that, but at Fort Duquesne, <coughs> at the forks of the Ohio, which had been a, a major 
contest point during the war. The British not only occupy it, but the fort that the French have evacuated and destroyed is now replaced by a new fort, Fort Pitt, which is a much bigger, more substantial <coughs> fort than anything that's been there before. A real, if you like, symbol of British imperial presence. At this, and here it is. Here, this is a depiction of Indians leaving Fort Pitt, right, turning their backs on the British Fort Pitt then, Fort Pitt now, right? Pittsburgh. But at the same time as British garrisons are occupying Indian territory, which seems a clear breach of, of promise to Indian people, <coughs> British policy shifts. Because Britain has fought a world war. It's bankrupt at the end of this war. It's won a huge empire. But it's broke. <coughs> and what is it going to do? And it's looking to the American colonies. How will it administer that empire? Well, one way of doing that <coughs> is to cut down on the amount of money that you spend on these Indian policies, on Indian diplomacy. In order to win Indians from the French, you had to invest huge amounts of money in gifts to Indians. Right? Because <coughs> gifts like wampum are essential to doing business in Indian country, to establishing alliances. Right? Not because Indians are mercenary, but without gifts, without those tangible objects to demonstrate that you're serious in your commitment and your pledges, it's not going to work. So now the British say, so we're, we're broke. Right? We've got to retrench on expenses. Where can we save a bunch of money? Hey, let's look at the Indian department. Because now the French are gone, we don't need to cultivate Indian allies anymore. And General <coughs> Jeffrey Amherst, the, the, the British commander, says, we're an empire. Right? We dictate. We don't negotiate. That's not what the French, how the French had operated, and it's a lesson that the English are going to have to relearn. What that amounts to for Indian people is these redcoats who <clears throat> presented themselves to us as allies and friends for the future are clearly our enemies. They're occupying our lands with troops, which is the one thing we were fighting against, and at the same time, by cutting off and withholding gifts, refusing to give gifts, limiting trade with us, that's essentially a declaration of hostile intent. <clears throat> and out of that comes a multi-tribal, multinational Indian resistance movement led by an, Odawa, an Odawa, or at least attributed to an Odawa war chief by the name of Pontiac. Right? And he's the person you were referring to. Right? He's not the only guy. Right? It's Gaya Shorter of the Senate, because this, this is a ferment of discontent running through the Ohio Valley, the Great Lakes, where Indian people are looking at what's happening and how their lands and independence are being threatened by this new imperial presence. And 12 years before the American Revolution, they take on the British Empire and do it with tremendous effect. Something like 2,000 people are killed, hundreds of British troops are killed. 
almost all of the British posts west of the Appalachian Mountains are taken. Niagara, Detroit, Fort Pitt are all laid siege to. <clears throat> that war ends not so much with British victory, but with a series of negotiations. Because the British realize that this new policy of dictating to Indians doesn't work. For an empire to function and survive in Indian country requires consent and allegiance with Indian people. What do Indian people want? They want their lands protected and preserved. And so even before Pontiac's war, as it's called, happens, the British are saying, we've got to do something about this. We've got to do something to check the flood of settlement going on to Indian land. Because as long as that's unchecked, we're going to have constant conflict and expensive wars which we can't, ex can't afford. <clears throat> so, Pontiac's war sends reverberations all the way back to London. Produces a couple of, <clears throat> several key decisions. One is, we need to keep an army, a military presence in North America. We need to keep an army of, you know, whatever it is, 10,000 troops. That's expensive. How are we going to pay for that at a time when British taxpayers have been taxed to the hilt after funding this long, expensive war? Well, here's an idea. Since this war was fought and this garrison is being maintained to protect our North American citizens, let's ask them to help foot the bill. Let's have taxation, even though we may not have representation. Right? So we all know where that went. <laughs> One of the smarter ideas coming out of war. Right? <clears throat> but the other thing they do, we, we perhaps don't pay so much attention to, is this proclamation line. In October 1763, the British government issues, King George III signs this proclamation. It's called the Royal Proclamation. And basically what it says, we've got to keep maverick traders out of Indian country. People who are going to treat, cheat Indians uh, and cause all, all kinds of problems. We've got to limit that. So you can only trade in Indian country with a license from colonial governors. More importantly, we're going to check expansion. We're not going to halt expansion. This line, imaginary line that we run down the Appalachian Mountains will be moved. But what will happen is that it will happen in an orderly process determined by the central government in London. Right? Now all this that I'm talking about will sound very familiar in about <coughs> an hour when I'm talking about United States Indian policy. Right? say, wait a minute, deja vu, didn't we just do this? Yes, we did. Uh, similar kind of things. <clears throat> because the thinking is that the, the problems on the frontier stem from the people on the frontier. People stealing Indian land, murdering Indian people, causing conflict, that's going to generate endless bloodshed. <clears throat> if you have the central government, whether it's in Philadelphia or London, determining when this expansion will happen, it can be done more in a more systematic way with fair treatment of Indian people. So, 1763 says people can't just go west. 
they can go north and south because one of the things the Brits are trying to do is populate colonies up in Nova Scotia and, and, and in the south. But Indian land west of the Appalachians, west of this land line, can only be ceded to the government and it can only be done in open treaty between the duly authorized, if you like, representatives of the Indian tribes and the official agents of the crowns. So you can't have every Tom, Dick and Harry pulling off a land deal in Indian country. <clears throat> now this has huge effects. It doesn't have much effect on squatters. Right? Scotch-Irish immigrants on the frontiers of Pennsylvania say, hell with that. Because <clears throat> you know, they're Scotch-Irish, right? <laughs> My people. <clears throat> they go across the line and they settle. And sometimes they get kicked out by the Brits, by the British Army. But the British Army doesn't have the resources, the willpower, the, <clears throat> the money to keep doing that. The people this proclamation really affects are those people I mentioned earlier. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin. The people who've been investing heavily and speculating in Western land. Who were going to make a killing when all the settlers went west to take up these lands. They were going to be there to sell them. Now there's a, to put the, to say the least, a huge cloud over their title. This is a major event that causes many people like George Washington to rethink their allegiance to the British Empire. Because the empire which they fought and served and sacrificed for, instead of rewarding them with their deserved fruits of victory, is withholding them. And it seems as if that French-Indian barrier, which once curtailed <coughs> colonial settlement has been replaced by a British Indian party. Yeah. From who were George Washington and his buddies buying this land from? Uh, buying is a Snatching. yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. what what you do is, if you're a colonial government like colonial government of Virginia, the king has given you a huge land grant, and I'm simplifying very hugely here. King has given you a huge grant of land, and so the colonial government or the governor can then distribute that land, right? And so what you have happening, say, in Virginia, is that the, you know, the Virginia colonial government, the House of Burgesses, which is made up of elite families, members of, elite, of the elite families of Virginia, is making land grants to people who are members of the elite families of Virginia, right? And so you get these claims, is really what they are, to lands out west, right? But... <clears throat> People like Washington devote a tremendous amount of effort and money into getting those lands surveyed. And because once you've got them surveyed, then you've got those registered and you've got a claim to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what happens is if this line holds for, say, 10 years, and then the British government says, okay, we'll move the line west, and George Washington moves, and this actually happens in Washington's life, he goes west to look at his properties, and there are people living on his property, on what he thinks is his property. And he says, wait a minute, I'm George Washington. I just won the revolution. You're on my land. And these are, again, Scotch-Irish settlers who say, wait a minute, we were here. 
we cleared the land, we risked our lives fighting, fighting the Indians, it's our land, go to hell. Right? Uh, and, and Washington takes them to court. Right? So you get the situation where the most important man in the nation, right, the hero of the revolution, is involved in this <coughs> court claim with these poor settlers. Um, so that's, it's all very complicated, but what it seems like to many people is that what we assumed, that we had a mutual interest, that we were subjects of the British Empire and happy to sacrifice that, that's no longer the case. Right? So in a lot of ways, when you think of Pontiac's War, taxation, presence of the British Army, and this proclamation line, it's then a kind of straight shot to the revolution. And 20 years later, 1763, Peace of Paris, 1783, different Peace of Paris, and then Britain transfers to the United States, not only recognizes the independence of the 13 uh, colonies, but also transfers those colonies, everything south of the Great Lakes, north of Florida, and east of the Mississippi. Right? Which means that the new United States, having turned its back on one empire, can now turn west and build another empire. Right? But again, <clears throat> this is land inhabited by other people. So what we've all been talking about here, or what I've been talking about, all that I've been talking <laughs> about, <clears throat> France and Britain exchanging territory, colonial governments handing out territory. This is a board game right, that European and colonial <coughs> powers play with little or no reference to the people on the ground, but the people on the ground matter because they still have real power. And so after the break, we're going to be talking about how the United States tries to translate that, if you like, paper claim to this territory, which has been handed by Great Britain, and make that a reality so that you can take tribal homelands and translate them into American real estate. Yeah, John. What, what kind of relationship existed between those Scotch-Irish settlers and the, the uh, native nations that, were, uh, that they were encroaching on? Yeah. Um, not particularly positive. <laughs> so actually, we're going to talk about these guys are come out, going to come back. We'll talk about them now. <clears throat> so um, when King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England, Union of the Crowns, one of the things he wants to do is, <clears throat> first of all, settle conflict on the on the border between England and Scotland. Right? Good luck doing that. Right? <clears throat> Have you seen a Scottish football team go to Wembley recently? <laughs> <coughs> and, of course, deal with the perennial Irish problem. One of the things he does is transport people from the <coughs> borderlands of Scotland, northern Scotland of England and the west of Scotland, to Northern Ireland. You create a Protestant barrier there. And they're designed to serve as a barrier against the wild Irish, right? with consequences in Irish history that, you know, go on well into the 20, 21st century. In the 18th century, many of those Scotch-Irish, as they're now called, migrate to North America, right? They get to Philadelphia. And then Pennsylvania, government of Pennsylvania, does exactly the same thing with them. So it flags them out to the frontier where these Scotch-Irish 
who are coming from a culture of hundreds of years of basically beating each other up, right, can go out on the frontier and act as either the shock troops of empire or a buffer against the wild Indians. Right? <clears throat> and as we'll see, you follow the Appalachian Trail, Appalachian Mountains, right? We talked about the configuration of mountains. The tendency of this migration is to trend south and west. So these are the people and the descendants of these people who keep going into Indian country, down through Georgia into Cherokee country, and then trend west. Right? People with names like Calhoun, Jackson, Boy, Crockett, right? These are people on the frontier, and they make their way, in some cases, to Texas, and well, they'll, they'll occur again. They, have a, they are somebody, uh, one of the govern, um, administrators, government officials in Pennsylvania says, and I think he sums up, they are hard neighbors to the Indians. Right? And I think that's probably a pretty fair characterization. But that west, that empire building of the United States doesn't stop at the Mississippi, of course, because in 1803, Thomas Jefferson acquires Louisiana Territory for, what is it, $15 million, 800,000 square miles. The nation doubles size overnight. It's a huge step in the growth of the nation. And it's one that, obviously, Thomas Jefferson gets huge credit for. Um, but it's not as natural or logical or inevitable as it looks. Because that Louisiana Territory, of course, had been in 1763, had been handed to Spain. But in the meantime, what's happened? Right? Well, the revolution has happened. The American Revolution has happened in large part, I would argue, because of what Indians have done. In the American Revolution, the French come in on the side of the Americans as an opportunity to settle old scores with the Brits. And you have French officers, French troops in America fighting alongside the Americans, who then go home. And they go home, in some cases, carrying the ideals of revolution. All men are created equal. How is that going to play in a country with an absolute monarchy? And the French Revolution, obviously, is a product of a complex interplay of factors. But ideology, thinking, just a simple notion, plays into that. Napoleon, in a sense, subverts that revolution. Right? and begins to create an empire in North America. And in 1800, he pressures Spain into handing Louisiana Territory back to France. Because, in part, part of his vision of this new world order that he's going to create is a rebuilding, a restoration of the French empire in North America. Right? But, the ideals or ideas of the French Revolution are no more easily contained than those of the American Revolution. And one of the places where the ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity go is San Domingue, Santo Domingue, Haiti, where there's a massive slave revolt led by a guy by the name of Toussaint Louverture, 
which is not only a massive slave revolt, but it's a massively successful slave revolt. It's apparently the biggest slave revolt since Spartacus, and it's the only time where a a slave society is able to rise up, throw off the shackles of slavery, and establish its own independent republic. This is going on in the Atlantic in the same era as the American Revolution. How often do our books talk about that? So if Napoleon is going to have a realistic opportunity to rebuild his French empire in America and in the West, he's got to get control of what is now Haiti. So he sends troops to Haiti. And Napoleon's French troops in the Caribbean do what British troops in the Caribbean did in the Seven Years' War. They die. I wanted this to be a picture of Edis aegypti, which is the mosquito that carries yellow fever and all kinds of other diseases, including the Zika virus. I think it actually might be a, an Asian tiger mosquito, so bear with me. Right? <laughs> but, <clears throat> there's always one, right? So you go into, you know, like Barnes and Noble, and you go to the American history section, right? And we're all obsessed with biographies of the founding fathers, right? Yeah, I'm writing one. Not a biography, but I'm writing on George Washington. So the shelves are weighed down with biographies of Adams, Jefferson, <coughs> Washington, Hamil- Hamilton, right? Yeah. Musical, right? There should be a biography of this guy, right? Because this guy, I think, is the reason why Louisiana Territory becomes America. Right? Because this is the guy that kills the French troops. French troops are dying by the thousand. So that when... Thomas Jefferson sends ministers to Paris to negotiate the purchase of New Orleans because, as Jefferson said, whoever controls New Orleans is our natural enemy. Because you think of that Western expansion. If you're a farmer, if you're in the West, if you're in Kentucky, or points west, you're not thinking to lug your produce back across the Appalachian Mountains. You're looking to float it down the Ohio, down the Mississippi to New Orleans. Right? If Spain holds that, if France holds that, you've got a problem. Right? So Jefferson's ministers go looking to buy New Orleans. And they arrive in Paris and the French minister said to us, have we got a deal for you? Right? Because Napoleon has decided to unload. Right? the war with Britain, the disasters in in the Caribbean, convinced Napoleon to to wash his hands of the French uh, Empire. This is not Jefferson's vision. This is not, well, maybe it is divinely ordained. Maybe that's what explains it all. But maybe it's chance, which we don't like necessarily think about. So look at this. So yes, this isn't my daughter did this, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you could construct something like this, right? And this is my notion of how Indian gifts, the whole question of Indian gifts affects American history. So the British failure and refusal to give gifts to Indians in 1763 produces an explosion, Pontiac's revolt <coughs> around Detroit, all hell breaks loose. That sounds repercussions all the way across the Atlantic to London. Say, okay, what are we going to do about this? We're going to do a number of things, one of which 
the Royal Proclamation of October 1763. Right? That sends repercussions <coughs> all through the colonies among the people, if you like, who matter. Right? Colonial elites <coughs> now think maybe we'd be better off on our own. Um, seventeen seventy six Declaration of Independence, Philadelphia. Right? The French, the American Revolution, sends <coughs> reverberations all through the Atlantic world, including to France. Right? The French Revolution sends reverberations through the Atlantic world, including to Haiti. Right? The slave revolt in Haiti scuppers Napoleon's plans to rebuild an empire in North America. He sells Louisiana territory to Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson sends Lewis and Clark <coughs> up the Missouri River to see what he bought. He'd been planning that even before it happened. And Lewis and Clark, heading up the Missouri River, are doing just fine in their relations with Indian people until, as we'll see when we look at this in more detail, they meet the Sioux. And the Sioux on the Missouri River say, hmm, okay, more white people coming up the Missouri River. We've had French traders and Spanish traders coming out of New Orleans and St. Louis heading up to the Mandan villages. You pay a toll. This is our river. You recognize our sovereignty by giving us gifts. Right? You've got a boatload of stuff. Give us some of it. French traders and Spanish traders had had no problem doing that. It was just part of the cost of doing business in Indian country. Lewis and Clark are there for a different purpose. They are there to declare United States sovereignty in this new territory that they've acquired. Right? It would be <coughs> counterproductive, in a sense, to try and establish American sovereignty by giving the gifts that recognize the sovereignty of the Sioux people on the river. Right? And the whole thing almost falls apart at that point. Right? Fortunately, it doesn't. And Lewis and Clark <coughs> can be seen as the opening um, salvos, if you like, of American imperial expansion into Louisiana territory, which we're going to look at in some detail. But what they are moving in to, contrary to those maps that we looked at, is not <coughs> an empty space. It is a space inhabited by Indian peoples, Indian nations, and contrary to what those maps might suggest, there's been an awful lot of stuff going on there <coughs> in the previous 100 or 50 years. Primarily because of the influx into that area of horses, out of the Spanish Southwest, which not only transformed the way of life of Plains Indians, but also transformed the Plains into a contested area because that equation, I think, of horses and buffalo and grass right, is one of tremendous power for creating unprecedented prosperity. This is a new way of life <clears throat> that beckons people onto the plains so that the plains becomes not only a place where people have lived for thousands of years, 
but also a place where other people move into to take advantage <coughs> of the new opportunities being presented there. Right? Go West, young man, 18th century style. Right? What American pioneers doing in the 19th century, Cheyenne and other Indian people do in the 18th century. They give up farming to move on to the plains and become equestrian buffalo hunters because that's where the power and the prosperity lies. Right? But you have to fight for it because other Indian people are doing the same thing. <coughs> They're hunting more extensively. They're fighting more effectively because they have horses and they're also having guns. And so this becomes a kind of a cauldron of conflict. But this increase of communication and contact and movement on the plains also opens up these societies to devastation. So lots of our books talk about the American Revolution, all of our books talk about the American Revolution, right? Washington and the Brits killing each other by the, the hundred, right? Very few of them talk about what was happening west of the Mississippi at the time the American Revolution was going on, right? Where we're talking about death tolls not in the hundreds, but in the thousands. In September 1779, smallpox breaks out in Mexico City. Kills 18,000 people by Christmas. Goes everywhere. Goes south, goes you know, Yucatan, Baja, California. Makes its way, eventually, to Santa Fe and San Antonio, which is a long way north of the Camino Real. But when it reaches those places... And it kills 5,000 people in New Mexico because the Spanish missionaries keep count of the death toll. When it reached Santa Fe and um, San Antonio, it's reached places which are already established as trade centers where Indian people from across the plains come to get horses. They come to buy them or liberate them. <coughs> and so what happens is that this smallpox epidemic begins to spread across Western North America following the same trails of communication and trade by which horses have traveled. It's almost as if the horses opened up these arteries by which this killer epidemic now spreads all across North America. So the Shoshones, when Lewis and Clark meet the Shoshones, you see the Shoshones have got horses with Spanish brands and Spanish bridles. Say, Where'd you get those? So we've got them from the south, we've got them from the Spaniards. They're 12 days ride away. Right? As I understand it, smallpox takes 14 days for the symptoms to appear. So if you're Shoshone, you can be down stealing horses, trading horses from the Spaniards, be infected with smallpox, you can be home sleeping with your wife, kissing your babies before the smallpox erupts. It goes <clears throat> pretty much everywhere. Right? Blackfeet get it from Shoshones. It goes across the northern plains. It goes to the Mandan Hadatsa villages, which are a central trade network. In the winter of 1783-84, Hudson Bay Company traders <clears throat> on the shores of Hudson Bay, who are used to Indian people coming in and bringing their pelts, nobody comes. So they go out into the Indian villages, and people are dead. And they talk about going into the lodges and, and gathering the beaver pelts themselves because their customers and their hunters are all dead. 
That's the same epidemic <coughs> that broke out in Mexico City four years earlier. Who knows how many people died? Conservatively, maybe half the population of the West. What are the implications for that of that for American expansion in that area? When we look at the conflict between the United States and the Indian peoples of the plains and that American victory, we have to take into account that these are societies that have been thrown into upheaval even at the same time as they're building their power. This is a massive, massive event in the West and we need to incorporate these kinds of things in our history. Not, not just so that we conclude Indians, but so that we can get a full picture of what's, what's going on and, and, and what happened. So, now back to Texas right, and our Scotch-Irish guys. Right? Among the peoples moving on to the plains are people like the Comanches, who emerge and build themselves into a major indigenous power on the southern plains. <clears throat> they do so by beating up other people, incorporating other people in their society, like you know an American melting, melting pot, controlling and dominating trade networks so that they're getting guns from Wichita Indians who are trading with French traders on the Mississippi, shuttling between Wichita Indians and Pueblo Indians <coughs> in the West. They build a, an economy based on buffalo hunting for sure, but also on herding pastoralism and also on raiding the South, raiding Spanish settlements, and then later raid, raiding Mexican settlements. So one of the things the Mexican government does is what kind of the Pennsylvania government does. is let's, Well, let's get some people in here to act as a buffer to protect ourselves against the Comanches and the Utes and the Apaches and the Kiowas, right? these newly powerful Indian nations who now have horses and guns and are beating up on us. So they attract people from, in many cases, the American South, people like uh, Jim Bowie. Davy Crockett, they're there to act as a buffer. Now, of course, we all know the story. These are Americans. They're not going to put up with Mexican dominance for long. <coughs> they will declare their, excuse me, <coughs> they'll declare their independence. <coughs> and we have the Alamo and Texan independence. Right? Well, part of their independence, of course, as you know, <clears throat> is the independence to hold slaves right? because one of the things that the Mexican government does is try to ban slavery in it, its northern provinces. Right? But those people, I think, would not have been there had it not been for the fact <clears throat> that the Mexican government is looking for some way to protect its frontiers against Indian power. And then you look to the Mexican session that sort of pale pink area, right? huge chunk of territory. And that we explain, of course, by the war, the Mexican War or the war with Mexico, 1846-48, which is often characterized as a pretty easy victory for the United States. 
And it results in this massive transfer of territory, right? Including California and everything that that means. Right? Well, again, if we look at this map, it seems like that's got to be a pretty straightforward story. Right? This was bound to happen because the Mexican government was weak, <coughs> Mexican troops were ineffective, American troops were courageous, all those kinds of things. But if we <clears throat> look at that map differently and do so in a way that <coughs> excuse me, includes this guy, a Comanche warrior, we've got a different story. Because first the Spanish <coughs> Empire on its northern frontier, and then Mexico has to confront this Comanche power. And so instead of a map that looks like this. Right? Consider a map that looks like this, where you plug in an Indian nation, and in this case you plug in not only an Indian nation, but the dominant power, Indian or not, on the southern plains. This Comanche power, which has been called by some scholars a Comanche empire, which involves not only the Comanche's dominating the southern plains, but also including as part of their economy constant raiding south into Mexico. Scholars, not me, scholars who worked in the Spanish and Mexican archives have <coughs> built a picture from the other side, if you like, where these Indian raids erode over generations the capacity of Mexico to defend its northern frontiers. Right? When we include this, then our understanding of the Mexican War has to shift. Right? And I think this is not just of academic interest. Right? I can remember teaching at the University of Wyoming getting student essays which talked about the Mexican War in derogatory terms about Mexicans. Obviously, we won the war because of negative Mexican trades. Right? Mexicans lost the war with the United States, perhaps not because they were Mexicans, but because they'd been getting beaten up on by major indigenous powers so that by the time American troops arrive, they really just have to topple it over. Right? Now, I don't want to sort of completely revise everything, but these are the kinds of things we need to think about. Right? And if we inject or in superimpose, perhaps, Indian nations onto those maps that are empty of Indian nations, it prompts us and hopefully prompts our students to rethink it and say, well, it can't be that simple. Right? especially if we do what we don't normally do, and that is to recognize that Indian power matters, that Indian people were present everywhere in, United, in North America at every stage, and that what they did was make decisions, develop foreign policies, flex their muscles in ways that made sense from their Native American perspective, not play out some bit part that's been pre prescribed for them in 
American history. So I'll finish again with at 10 o'clock, what about that, hey? <laughs> with this map, right? Cycles of history, right? We've got to incorporate into our thinking Native American histories, how they viewed their history, how they lived their own histories, how they shaped their own histories, but also, as I'm suggesting in this talk, they shaped the history of the United States. And I think we ignore that at our peril. Right? If, we're gonna, if our goal here is to not only give our students an understanding of American history, but to get them to think and hopefully to think for themselves. So that's, that's my spiel on this. Thank you very much. And I'm not sure if we want to, if we have time to take questions, um, but I'll take questions. Right, whether. Yes? As a teacher, it would be so easy to take, like the map you showed us yesterday, of all the Indian lands west of the Mississippi and superimpose them over the territories and everything the kids have ingrained in their heads. <coughs> how do you think that hasn't been done? I'm just flabbergasted. I'm thinking right now how I can do that in a class, you know, take that, take this, and have the kids actually create a map. Why do you think that hasn't been done? It's just, it seems to be such an easy fix for, small easy fix. Why do you think it hasn't been done? Um. It, it has been done, and I, 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 to some extent. Um, and you can get lots of maps showing Indian <clears throat> positions of Indian nation, Indian tribes in the United States. The problem with it is, and it is difficult, and I think part of the resistance, or part of the way, why reason that these things haven't been done is because <clears throat> once you get into Indian history... Speaking personally, you're done. I mean, you're sucked in. <laughs> it's like peeling an onion, right? You say, okay, I'm going to look at this, and that, oh, well, but now I have to go over here and understand that because we're not talking about Indian history, even though I've been talking about Indian history. We're not talking about Indian history. We're talking about the histories of multiple Indian nations. And maybe each one has a history that's as complicated in its own right as that of the United States. So what are you going to do with that in a in a class, right? How are you going to do that? The other thing is that in a world set in motion, in the way that I've described, um, a lot of the maps that we do have are actually somewhat misleading, right? So, where's Sarah, right? Sarah's interested in Seminoles. You can still find maps showing location of Indian tribes in the United States or in North America at the time of Columbus, and you've got Seminoles in Florida. Right. Seminoles don't exist in 1492. Right. Or you'll get crows <coughs> in south-central Montana, because that's where they are today. Crows don't exist in 1492. Right. They emerge onto plains. They're an offshoot of the Hadats. As the Seminoles migrate into uh, Florida, they're an offshoot of the Creek Confederacy. This kind of thing's happening all the time. So people more technologically adapt than myself and I know that's most people <laughs> that's everybody <laughs> um, can now probably create maps in motion 
which is what you need to, to get that kind of thing. But I think your, your, <coughs> your original point, I don't mean to sidestep it or dismiss it, it's right. We've got to include, we've got to recognize Indians as nations. That's a huge first step. And that's not just people like me today being politically correct. Because in the 18th century, the Brits and the French and even in the early United States referred to Indians as nations. They recognized them as nations. That's how they understood that you had to deal with them. That's why you had treaties. So these are recognized as nations. Um, And once we attribute to Indian tribes, nationhood, peoplehood, sovereignty, and those kinds of things, that opens up the way for a whole different set of understandings or questions about what's going on that means they're doing something else than simply having a knee-jerk, generic Indian response to white people. Because one of the things that I may not get time to talk about this week, but what otherwise, is the Indian people on the plains, like the Crow Indians, who fight alongside the United States. Custer has Crow scouts. What's going on there? Why do Crows and Shoshones and Arikaras and Pawnees, and then later on even Arapahos and some Northern Cheyennes, serve as scouts and allies for the United States against other Indians? And our students are often sort of puzzled by that because didn't all Indians realize that white people were a threat? Why didn't Indian people, from the moment white people arrived on the East Coast, sort of gang up on them, kick them out? Because, in a sense, there's no such thing as Indian people. There are multiple different nations. Going back to that... spoky kind of diagram that I have, who very often are more concerned with the neighboring Indian nations than they are with which king thousands of miles away thinks that their land is his land. If you're Osage in the 18th century, if you're Comanche in the late 18th century, you don't give it much thought because you are powerful. You control your own destinies. And your power limits the fairly precarious, still fairly (coughs) precarious power of these European empires whose ambitions in North America will be realized only if they take account of that Indian power. And everybody realizes that in the 18th century. But I think we... We have to work to get back to that understanding in the 21st century. And the exercise is not to turn it all on its head and say, okay, white, white guy's bad, Indian's good, that you know, the way we've understood American history is all wrong. I think the purpose here is to say, okay, if this is how American, Indi- American history unfolded, we get a better understanding of that if we identify and follow that Indian strand or those multiple Indian strands through that story.
I don't know whose question that was or what it, <laughs> what it you know, sorry. What role did the Comanche play in that Mexican-American war? Did they just defend the border? Did they take a side? No, the no, they're doing their own thing. Right? They're doing their own thing. And uh, so it's not that they, unlike previous wars, where Indian people have been pulled into that or, or seen the reason to do that, they're, they're not involved in that way. Right? And did Americans just stay out of their border lands altogether until fall? Uh, no, there's a lot of overlap. And I mean, this whole area, I mean, one of the interesting things that happens, so when we're looking <coughs> at that, uh, <coughs> that border, I'm not going to go back to that map because I might confuse things, but think of that uh, border that's run at the end of the <coughs> Mexican War with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Right? There's an incident where the American surveyors are running the, the new international border. Right? And they're going across Apache country. And a bunch of Apaches turn up. Right? They're sitting on their horses watching them. They've got all this surveying equipment. And they say, so, what are you doing? And the surveyor, this is, I think, a Josiah Bartlett surveyor. They say, oh, well, we're, we're mapping the, the new border. It's an imaginary line but it's a new international border. On this side of the line is the United States territory, on this side of the line is Mexico. And Apache said, huh, where's Apache country? Right? Which, by the way, we're all sitting on. Right? <laughs> and the American surveyors don't have an answer. Right? Two weeks later, they don't have any horses. Because right? the Apaches realize what's going on. These are not friends. So the, the whole <coughs> what's going on here, of course, is this intrusion of uh, American power, American claims uh, to territory and other things into an Indian world. Uh, and, and that, of course, is, is, is going to be, I suppose, the story of the second half of the, of the 19th century, how to, how to assert that dominance uh, and, and what happens to that Indian power. So Comanches are a huge power, but there's a an incident in 1786, right? This is just after the smallpox epidemic, where <coughs> Spaniards are trying to make peace with the Comanches. Right? And one of the reasons that the Comanches give for making peace is they say, we've recently lost two-thirds of our people, right? That would have been to the smallpox epidemic. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that two-thirds of all Comanches died. It may have just been that particular band. Right? But this is, a, this is a tumultuous world. Right? Elliot West, who is a historian that I admire greatly, has written a number of <coughs> uh, great books on the West. Uh, he says somewhere talking about this whole pioneer experience in the West and settlers moving west. The West the nineteenth century West was not a was not a particularly dangerous place to live unless you were an Indian. Because if you're an Indian person the worlds that you've built, right, and these new worlds that you've built with horses and guns and everything else, are falling apart even as you're even as you're developing the, these, these things. Uh, so it's a hugely tumultuous story. 
maybe beg this the last question so we can have a break for once. Right. Yeah. I'm really interested in the accounting given of the British decision to no longer sustain their relation with their diplomatic relations with the Indians mm -hmm. to the same degree that they did during the, um, the French and Indian War. And I'm really fascinated by this choice and I wonder what your take on it is. Do you think, do you want, like you mentioned that at the time they saw themselves as an empire that didn't need to negotiate but only needed to like command um, other nations. Do you think it's, can it, can it all be put up to who, the, the hubris of this British empire? Do you think mm -hmm. it was a miscalculation in other respects? Or was there something like really dismissive towards these Indian nations which they had just had relations with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, three weeks ago I wouldn't have given the same answer, but now being British I can give you this answer. <laughs> because British people are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Brexit. Um, <laughs> it makes sense, right? Just as I, <clears throat> I, I always argue that if we look at what Indian, <clears throat> excuse me, what Indian peoples do, first step towards understanding is say, okay, let's recognize these people as <clears throat> thinking human beings. And so they're going to make decisions that seem to be in their best interest, given what they can see at the time. Right? And of course, this is part of the tragedy of the human experience. Whether it's, you know, the First World War, the American Civil War, or Brexit, right? You look at something, I think we look at something and say, okay, if we do this, or don't, or stick with what we've got here, certain things are going to happen that we don't like. We know that that's not going to be good. So let's do this, right? And sometimes we don't get what we wish for. <clears throat> and I think from, from the British perspective, this retrenchment was a necessity. Right? And that was an obvious place to go because they'd understood their relationships with India in relation to their conflict with the French. The French are now out of the picture. How big a deal can this be? Um, and so I think it's, for many people, it's, um, it's maybe perhaps a no-brainer I think for Jeffrey Amherst, who has very negative, vicious attitudes towards Indians, um, it, it's something else. This is the Jeffrey Amherst of Amherst, Massachusetts, right? The person that some people you know, uh, accuse of using germ warfare against Indian people at, at Fort Pitt, right? He actually didn't. He just advocated it. They were already doing it, right? Um, so there's, there's that kind of thinking that plays into it. But, for instance, Sir William Johnson, who is the British superintendent of Indian affairs in the north, who knows Indians, right? He lives with Indians. Um, he understands that this is a, you know, he's warning again, don't do this, right? You don't know what you're doing. You don't know where this is going to lead. Uh, so it's not, again, a a generic British response. It's people making decisions at key moments that, that seem to make sense to them. Right? And as we know, right, often the repercussions of our actions have unforeseen consequences. Right? Brexit, war in Iraq, we can name a million of them. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think the danger for us as historians, especially if you're you know, a professional historian, is to look back and, you know, Contrary to what I said, they did that because they were dumb. Right? 
They didn't. They did that because we would have probably done the same thing in their situation. Because what they could see and how they could understand the world would be what we could see and understand the world if we were in that situation. Uh, and I think that's, that's an important thing that for us to think of and remind ourselves all the time. Uh, I think being historians, you need to... The, the, I see it almost as a constant reminder, it's a constant injection of humility. Right? In order to understand these people, we have to not sort of look down on them, if that's the right word. You know, even Jeffrey Amherst, it's hard not to, but... You know. We owe him that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Let's take a 10, 15 minute break. American history.